is Mm. our kids, Mm. a few things. One, it's learned helplessness. Kids today think they aren't capable of doing things because someone else is always doing it for them. The second is they don't incrementally learn how to deal with adversity or or develop responsibilities. So an example would be in school, I would never... Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Earrings Off. We want to invite you to subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. You can find us on Facebook at Earrings Off Podcast and on Instagram at The Earrings Off Podcast. Welcome to Earrings Off. I'm Lou. And I'm Teresa. Let's get started. Hello, we are here today and honored to have with us Melissa Lowry. Melissa is an education coach. She's a principal at a, at a Christian school in Georgia. She has over 20 years of experience in education. So we are honored again to have you with us today. And we look forward to um, our conversation today. I, When I looked at your profile, um, Melissa, what I loved, you have a statement that I want to share with our listeners that really spoke to me. And you said that I do not have a product to sell or hidden agenda to push. With over 20 years of experience, I simply want to provide parents, educators, and students with tips and tricks to improve their parenting, teaching, and learning developmental experiences. I love that because, you know, this is, this is so important. The topic that we're going to have as the focus today is important. Um, and so many times people we can't have a discussion an authentic discussion because people do they bring their own agenda their own biases into that and so it's hard to peel the layers back to see what might work what might not what might not be the best course so um again that statement uh, spoke to me and um we're excited about today's discussion Oh, thank you so much, Lou and Teresa. I'm so excited to be here. So, um, Melissa, how can parents positively impact their child's remote distance learning experience? Because, you know, right now with the pandemic, um, we people are still struggling with that. Teresa and I hear all the time from listeners and friends and families who are just having some challenges with that. And, um, uh, so can, can you share a bit about that? Yes. And I would say it's a bit of an oxymoron to associate virtual or distance learning with anything that might be positive because it's, the two mm-hmm. seem to not be able yeah. to coexist right now yeah. um, for a number of different mm-hmm. reasons. And that brings me sort of to my first sort of piece of advice is everyone need, needs to take a deep breath and actually needs to forgive themselves because most parents out there are not teachers. I, I wouldn't walk into a room right, and, yeah. try and, and try and do right. surgery on someone. Right, right. Even, right. even if it was That's an emergency, correct. even right. if it was an emergency, I wouldn't say, you know, I've, I've watched a lot of episodes of ER <laughs> right. in my time. I think <laughs> that I right. can do this. Yeah, yeah. Um, yet we have thrown so many parents and other caregivers, right? Um, guardians and and custodial guardians and foster parents into positions where they are ill-equipped 
to be able to meet the needs of the child when it comes to education. So I think the first thing is the collective sort of just deep breath and the forgiveness, and then also the acknowledgement that we are in this together throughout the nation and the world. Everybody is struggling with the same issue here. And so I, I hate to use the phrase misery loves company, but it's one of those things where no one is untouched by this. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter what your background is, the color of your skin, your socioeconomic level, every single child, every parent that I've spoken to, every podcast or interview I've given, I'm, I'm hearing the same things and seeing the same things. Every child has been touched like this. And when we can acknowledge that as a community, as um, a society, we're in this together, I think it allows us, again, to breathe a little bit, step back and say, okay, um, I'm not alone. I know that other students are going to be facing these challenges and I'm not going to put that much pressure on myself. So I think that's mm -hmm. one of the first things is, is that forgiveness. I think the second and most important thing I have said across the board is the creation of routine and the main, like maintaining and fostering structure, which the research tells us that routine and structure are things that help to actually bring down anxiety levels in mm -hmm. both adults and in children. Mm -hmm. So the best thing that parents can do is to create a routine and a structure at home and then to help their student to, de to develop some level of independence for that routine and that structure because it will naturally bring down the anxiety level. So it's getting up at the same time every mm -hmm. single day. It is eating balanced meals, regardless of the child's desire to want to eat Pop-Tarts for every single um, meal of the day. And I think that a lot of parents, are they feel guilty because of what's happening. And so they have a tendency to give on lots of different things. And that's okay. We all have to give a little bit. And we're probably allowing a little more technology, mm -hmm. a little more television, mm -hmm. a little more of this or that. But when we get to the point where there's no structure and routine, our children actually in the long run will suffer more for that. So we feel like, oh, I'm being the nice parent because I'm giving on this. And that's okay a little bit. We've all got to do it. But at the end of the day, when we are able to create and maintain routine and structure, our children will thank us for that more than anything else. Mm -hmm. And then I think beyond that, it is opening the lines of communication with your children. A five-year-old can still understand phrases like, mommy's having a really, really hard time right now and I need your help. It is okay for us as adults to ask our children to be a part of the process and to rise to the occasion. They're not breakable. You have children. I have children. Mm -hmm. They, even the day they come home from the hospital, they're not breakable. They're very resilient. And I think what makes our children more nervous and what I've heard in my interviews with kids is they know something's wrong. They know their parents are stressed, but their parents refuse to share it with them. Mm -hmm. And so there is this underlying level of stress that no one is talking about. But when parents involve their children and say, hey, look, mom's got to work today. I need to do these things. I really need your help with this. This is the routine and structure we're going to set up. Most children actually respond really well to that because every human being needs and wants self-worth. Mm -hmm. Every human being wants dignity and respect and wants to be treated that way. And when we treat our children, when we kind of think they're not 
mature or resilient enough to handle a little bit of what we're going through, we disrespect them in some ways. And they actually can feel that. And so by involving them in the day-to-day routine and structure of your house in helping them to understand that this is stressful for mom and dad, that we're not perfect, that we make mistakes, that we may raise our voice or yell or snap a little bit when we're under our own pressure from work or, or caregiving, let's say for an elderly grandparent, or we will have, you know, a lot of us have experienced loss during COVID. And so all of those things, the more we hide them from our children, actually the more anxiety that producing that is for them. And so while many parents have said, I want concrete academic things I can do, what I have found is when you're setting up an environment that is conducive to learning with routine and structure, when you are being empathetic and compassionate to both yourself and the rest of your family, when you are involving your children in decisions that uh, affect your family that are developmentally appropriate, it actually then helps to create that environment where children are in a better position to learn. Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. you know as well as I do, when we're super stressed out, we're not taking in information, are we? It's hard for us to listen and to hear. And our children are no different. They're just younger versions of us that are in a different developmental place. They're no no less intelligent than we are. They're just younger. So those are some of the things that I would say uh, even above and beyond the education aspect. And then the other educationally is just trying to support their efforts, allowing Mm -hmm. them to struggle a little bit. That is okay. And then helping them when they need to communicate with their teachers. That's a Mm -hmm. big one. I think um, when it comes to remote, when it comes to remote learning, Mm -hmm. now it could be a whole nother podcast on how we help our learners that are on the fringes. And I don't even know that we have enough time to get Mm -hmm. into that. My biggest worry as an educator um, are not the students whose parents are involved and who may have a two parent household or a two guardian household, or even mm-hmm. a multi-generational household, right, where there's right, right. An, an aunt or an uncle or grandparents, but our children who, whose parents are struggling with addiction or other things, they can't right. get to the internet. Those are the children that I, right. I most worry about and helping them is, a, is sort of a whole different thing than right. I think what we're focused on right now. Right. Wow. And yeah. that that's um I, I get that because I I serve on a, a state board that deals with um social services, which a large part of uh, fo- that focus is on lower income families and the challenges that they are now facing with this remote learning, not having access to uh, the internet, not having the resources, not having food, and the children struggling with that, and that impact on um, their ability to learn and focus. So those are all excellent points. And when you started out, Melissa, by saying that, you know, first of all, just step back and and take a deep breath. Um, I think that's so true. And that's not to be minimized, because I think back for years, <clears throat> if, you know, in my career, when I would work with adults and even go into uh, environments that maybe other people might have been a bit intimidated, you know, in the legislature or having to give a, a speech somewhere. I was more comfortable in that environment versus when I even had to um, chaperone at my son's school 
that would send me into a frizzy. I'm telling you, I just, I, I felt nervous if I had to take a trip to DC and, you know, they even assigned me five kids. And it was like, I was, I didn't sleep at night because that was totally out of my comfort zone to be in that type of environment. So, yeah. Well, Lou, I will tell you right now, I think that Congress would have a very hard time standing up to an unruly group of nine-year-olds. I, w- I would probably bet on the nine- nine-year-olds yeah. any yeah. day of the week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So very... Um- yeah, thank you. That was uh, really good information. And, and to me, if um, the news media spent more time sharing tips and tools like what you just shared this morning, I think we'd all, all parents would be in a better place and so with their children, yeah. um, because they would know better how to how to address them and how to even give themselves, you know, the grace that you 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 started out talking about. So thank you, thank you for those those tips. Um, the one thing one thing that I liked about what you said, um, and I have to remind myself of this, is that they are children are just like us, right? And they react to what we we react to. And so that's that's a even um, um, more um, important tip. And with that, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, that how can I better understand my child's developmental age or stage? And why does he or she act like that? And how should I react? So how should an individual react? So I always go back to um, everybody's favorite TV host, Oprah Winfrey. And years and years ago, when she was still Mm -hmm. on the air, she had some child psychologists on so on and so forth. And they polled her audience and they asked the audience, how old do you think a, a child should be when you like when you expect that child to be able to share, like actually mm-hmm. share with mm-hmm. other children. Mm-hmm. And I think the audience, they thought it was about 18 months to two years. And all the child psychologists just sort of chuckled. And it's not until 36 months or three years old that we can develop mentally, where that child developmentally is in a place to actually be taught to and expected to begin to be able to share with his or her peers. Up until wow. that point, Children are doing what we call parallel play, where they'll play alongside other children, but they don't really know how to interact yet. But it just kind of sent the message. That's why it never went away away from my mind that we often will overshoot or undershoot sort of what our expectations should be for our kids. And so Mm -hmm. I have two recommendations. You were talking about sharing resources. One is... um, the Gazelle Institute, it's G-E-S-E-L-L, and they're out of Yale. And they are probably, in all of my years of, of teaching um, and coaching, they probably are the foremost expert on, on child development as far as developmental ages and stages. And they actually have a set of books that are phenomenal. And they're very small. And they start out with my one-year-old, my two-year-old, and they go wow. all the way up through mm-hmm. 14. Okay. And, and those books, I don't know if they're how they're available. I know you can get them on their website, but they're very inexpensive. And they are excellent. They do a little book on like, is my child ready for kindergarten and things like that. And so I always recommend, in fact, oftentimes I'll buy a bunch of those and I'll give them out to parents that come in to talk to me because I think the more than anything that I can say, they just really deliver the information in a really, really great relatable manner. But what I can say is 
from birth until about six years old, our children will go through a very pronounced um, change from one developmental stage to another about every six months. Mm -hmm. This is why we'll see an 18 month old that's utterly delightful. And then a two-year-old, that is a nightmare. And that's why you get the terrible twos, right? Somewhere between two and two and a half. Their word is no to everything. Because developmentally, with brain development, that is about the time that a child really discovers their power. That their language, that's where that language explosion starts. Somewhere between two, two and a half, two to three. Well, all of a sudden they have power in language, right? And so everything is no, because they are beginning to understand that they are autonomous beings and that they are separate from their parents. And so no is the best and fastest way to get somebody's attention. Whereas Mm. you might find that your four-year-old, again, is then utterly delightful and somehow four and a half to five is a stage of disequilibrium. And so this is why from birth to six, it's as if you're living with um, a child that might be somewhat schizophrenic, but then that would actually be an insult to somebody with that condition because Mm -hmm. the the kids are much, much Mm -hmm. nuttier. Mm -hmm. And that's because their brain development is happening at such a rapid speed. We, we don't experience a level of growth, whether it's physical growth or developmental growth or cognitive growth. We don't, we don't experience a larger sort of spurt than we do between birth until about 14 mm-hmm. than at any other time in our lives. And so birth to six is that real huge piece. And there are some scientists that will argue that between birth and three is when almost all of our hardwiring is set up, which is why the interest in trauma that happens mm-hmm. in a child's early mm-hmm. life has come to the forefront. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing a lot more discussion and research into that because children's experiences very early on from in utero until about three to four can have a profound impact on how their brain developments develops and that wiring in the brain. Now, going to about six years old from about six until about 14, we'll see a different developmental age and stage about every year. So it starts to slow down a little bit. And then when we hit Mm -hmm. 14, 14 is about when our students, our children will begin to, to go into the understanding of higher concepts and abstract reasoning, which is why you'll see in middle school kids who one day will seem to get sarcasm. And then you'll tell a joke because I taught middle school the next day and it falls completely flat. And that's because they will t- step two steps into abstract reasoning and then three steps backwards from that understanding. Wow. And, and that happens mm-hmm. at about 14 or so. And then high school, for the most part, we see them level off as far as personality and middle school seems now to be a much more difficult age developmentally to sort of talk to our kids and they kind of level out a little bit in high school, but then high schools where we see that risk-taking behavior. And that's because the frontal lobe is not well-developed until about 25. And Mm. that's why they are ripe for bad decisions from about 14 to 25, which is probably why you really can't rent a car until you're about 25, Mm -hmm. why you you shouldn't vote until you're at least 18, and why our kids don't live independently and and drive a car at 15 and, and things like that. There are reasons for this. And that's because they are their frontal lobes are a little bit of a disaster. And that that 
speaks to everything from executive function to decision making uh, and things of that nature. And so that's a real kind of crash course in sort of how you would see the development. I would say to parents, again, on the whole forgive yourself scale, your children are going through, again, a lot of rapid growth and development during a very short period of time. And when when we were young, we didn't have access to the internet. We did Mm -hmm. not have Mm -hmm. 20,000 television uh, channels and Netflix. Our access to information was far more limited than it is for children today. And I don't think we can ever underscore the impact that that exposure has Mm for our children, anxiety and stress levels. No one seems to be able to like point a finger at what is driving this rise in anxiety levels that we are seeing in our kids. Mm -hmm. But I can't help but think as a practitioner that, and and as a parent and, and all of that, that some of what is contributing to that is early access to information when our children developmentally are not quite ready. And yeah, I know yeah. I get I get uh, questions all the time about like, when should my child have a phone? When should our child have social media? When should our child, all of these different things. And I, I don't have every answer. Uh, I know that there's lots of great emerging research on that. What I can say is that developmentally, I have a tendency to recommend a more conservative approach to some of the information that's available to our kids because they don't yet know totally how to process it. Right. right, right. Um, and so that has an impact, but developmental ages and stages, it's every six months from birth to, to six years old. So it's okay that your child seems to be sort of pinballing mm-hmm. in all these emotions. Um, it is okay to have a child that one day, especially a teenager is perfectly happy. And then eight minutes later, they are crying. That doesn't mean you've done anything wrong. Um, A great book for parents of girls is called Untangled. And that really helps parents of girls walk through um, what girls are feeling emotionally up through middle school. And then there's a companion book for high school. I can't quite remember the name of it. And then for boys, there's a great one. It's called Boys Adrift. Um, and it's, it's excellent. And it also can walk through these developmental ages and stages and what's developmentally appropriate. Mm-hmm. So I really recommend both of those, but those books, the, my one-year-old, my two-year-old for those parents that want that deep dive, those are some of the best. One other book by Chip Wood is called Yardsticks for mm-hmm. Children and Yardsticks for Children is one like we adopted it for our faculty and we had our faculty a few years ago because the school that I'm the principal at is K to eight. So we have a wide range mm-hmm. of developmental ages and stages. And we had our entire faculty do some professional development using Chip's book. And it uh, was excellent for our faculty to really look at how we serve our students in the classroom from a developmental perspective. And it has a lot of great information for parents as well. Okay. Wow. Um, Thank you so much for those um, resources. And you said the Gazelle Institute is G-E-S-E-L-L-E. Correct. Okay. Uh, No E on the end, just G-E-S-E-L-L. Okay, Mm -hmm. great. All right. And they're they're out of Yale uh, uh, University. Okay. Thank you. Yes. So what are executive function skills and um, because I'd never heard that term um, in reference to to students, Melissa. So what are executive function skills and how do I help my child develop them? 
Yes. So um, executive function skills are a fancy, it's a very fancy term for something very easy that a lot of people understand. It's how to keep your shit together. <laughs> that's, that's sort of the best way that I can describe it. Is okay. That's executive function is everything from where did I put my keys to how do I uh, plan my day, my week, my year, things of that nature. nature. And so I actually did my master's thesis back way back in, uh, I think it was 2000 on the relationship between study skills development and academic achievement. And I just ran a very small study on if kids were provided with a whole bunch of different types of study strategies, would it influence uh, their ability to raise their GPA? Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, mm-hmm. we saw a, a correlation, not quite sure if it was causal, but we definitely saw an uptick. But what I found was it wasn't the strategies themselves. It was the process, which we call, again, a fancy word for something not that fancy is metacognition. Mm-hmm. Metacognition mm-hmm. is the ability for somebody to engage in the process of evaluating how they learn. That's it. It's basically self-reflective process. And the reason why I bring mm-hmm. all that up is we've been looking at this for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. It's just they didn't really term it executive function until far later. And I don't know exactly when that was, but it was way after 2000 because that was in it was in none of the research that um, that I was doing at mm-hmm. the time. And basically what I have found as a parent is one of the best things that I have done for my own two children. And I have a junior in high school and an eighth grader right now mm-hmm. is to stop doing things for them. I don't know what is up with parents today. And I am usually not one to judge because I, I don't like to throw stones from my own glass house because mm-hmm. I struggle yeah. with, it doesn't matter that I do it for a living. I struggle with the same parenting issues that everybody else does. But what I have found both in that research and then the research when I wrote my own book and then my you know job as a parent is we, as this generation of parents, I don't know if it's because we feel guilty. I don't know if it's because... Um, we think that they can't handle things themselves, but we have a tendency to overschedule our children. We have a tendency to helicopter them to death or the newest one is the snowplow parent. I'm going to just push all of the adversity out from in front of you like a snowplow. So you never actually have to experience it. And so what's happened mm-hmm. is our kids, mm-hmm. a few things. One, it's learned helplessness. Kids today think they aren't capable of doing things because someone else is always doing it for them. The second is they don't incrementally learn how to deal with adversity or or develop responsibility. So an example would be in school, I would never teach a first grader algebra. But start or geometry, but starting in kindergarten, we will expose students to algebraic concepts and some geometric concept concepts like patterning. Patterning is geometry, but it's a very beginning stage of it. And then we scaffold concepts year after year until all of a sudden in eighth grade, we have a group of students ready for algebra. Well, why would we expect a 16-year-old to be able to schedule himself if up until 16, you have done it for him? You can't just wake up one day with a skill. You have to practice like a sport. Like anything else, you have to practice and develop the muscles 
that it takes to engage in that activity. So what I tell parents is, and this is in a lot of those, um, my one-year-old, my two-year-old, they actually outline what responsibilities your children are ready for at different ages. So for instance, Mm, excuse me, Um, Melissa, excuse me. So you're saying um, in one of these books that you reference that Mm -hmm. they actually do that. And what's the name of that? The gazelle books that I want my one-year-old, my two-year-old, they actually have sections in them that say like, what is my child ready for? And so what I would say is a child as young as two years old can start to sort laundry. Wow. That's like life changing <laughs> to have a child yeah. at two. You can give the child socks. You can give the child towels and say, I want you to try and fold them by color or pattern or things mm. like that. Our kids want to help. They want to feel oh. that they are valued in their family and they want to play a part and a role because I, think of how we feel when we're given responsibility, authentic well, responsibility. Well, Melissa, this is just going downhill fast for me because <laughs> my kid never folded laundry until he went to college. Okay. I knew this was going to happen, but go on. Okay. So, so the younger they are, when they are given chores and responsibilities, the better mm-hmm. off they're going to be. And it's a very easy way. Like you don't have to hire some executive function coach, coach like me. I mean, don't pay the money for someone like me, have them fold some laundry, have them make their bed. Because what happens with those things is executive function is also soft skills. How do you live your life in a way that helps you to be an independent, successful person? And I can say that while, while I'm happy to do my kids laundry, my junior in high school is taking AP classes. She is volunteering. I mean, she has a lot on her plate and her first job is school. So yes, she does her own laundry, but that doesn't mean when I see it in the dryer, I don't fold it for her every once in a while, of course. But I also know that if I have to go somewhere, she will have clean clothes because she knows how to engage in in doing her laundry. My eighth grader is a boy and they are just as capable as the girls. He makes his bed and his room is most of the time far more organized than anybody else. And my son is dyslexic and he has some other academic challenges, but his executive function skills are very strong because he has to organize his life. I don't organize his life and I don't overschedule him for the reason that he needs to learn those skills on his own. And so I don't check his Google classroom at school. I, I don't overmanage him and it's very difficult. I mean, we all want to do it, right? but, but he, ha- he has right. to learn <laughs> and they have to fail. Mm-hmm. It is okay for kids to get a C. It's actually okay, okay for kids to get a D. Like that is not the end of the world because what are the things that they learn from that experience so they don't repeat that behavior? If we snow plow it out of the way, if we overschedule them and make all the plans and then help them solve every problem. Again, learned helplessness. They're not going to want to do it on their own. And we're not going to help them develop the muscles Mm -hmm. to face greater adversity and bigger problems later, because we know the world is not fair. I mean, we know that Mm -hmm. the world is going to deal us difficult cards that our parents, uh, our our caregivers are not going to be able to solve. And so the number one book on this one that I can tell you guys is it's called how to raise an adult. And the author is Julie Lithkoff-Haynes. She is the former director of admissions for Stanford University. And she has by far one of the best TED Talks that I have ever watched. Really? Yes. But her book, How to Raise an Adult, is 
amazing. If you don't okay. read anything else, read okay. that. It is the number one book. We use title funding at my school to purchase a bunch of them. And we just like give those things out like Tic Tacs. <laughs> and um, a lot of parents who have read it have responded that this makes sense because her children now are a little bit older and she reflects on everything that I just talked about from the perspective of a college admissions director at a very selective. Right, school. right, right. And <clears throat> what she sees now in what's happening with many of her students who are coming to college very ill-equipped academically, they've achieved, but in their, in their regular everyday lives, they don't know how to function and they don't know how to solve problems and they don't know how to do everything from call and make a doctor's appointment to mail a letter to balance a checkbook. And these are all things that you know, as well as I do have more of an impact on whether or not you can function in daily life than your SAT score and your GPA. They really do. And so we're doing Mm -hmm. our kids a disservice. So executive function really has to do with, again, soft skills and can, can you keep all of it together? And can you contribute in all these non-academic ways? And while it is important to make our, you know, have our kids understand that, you know, school is a job, we want them to do well. Our kids don't have control over how they do academically as much as we'd like to say that they do. We can study for a test all night and fail, but nobody can take away us making our own bed, us cleaning our own room, being able to do our own laundry, being able to control our lives. And when we go back to earlier, setting up routine and structure, we feel better when we have control over things. Well, Think of the pandemic. We don't have control over anything in our lives right now, but we can teach our children to have control over themselves and their reaction to things. We all should be feeling emotion, every emotion in the book, pain and sadness and frustration, but we need to help our children learn how to not allow emotion to control them. Mm -hmm. And those are executive function skills. When I am disappointed, do I lash out? Or do I evaluate and and go into that metacognitive process of evaluating why I failed, what happened in the process, and how I changed that? As a classroom teacher, there are four questions that I worked on always with my middle school students after every assessment, assignment, and test. What went right? What went wrong? What do I replicate? What do I change? And this can be applied everywhere. If you lose a soccer game, okay, what went right in the soccer game? What did I do well? And how do I replicate it next time? What happened that that I did wrong or our team did wrong? How do we change it for next time? Those four questions can take a child without executive function who's really flailing with how to move on from a failure to a place of control. Okay, I can't control what happened. It's over. Take a failure bow and, and, and let it go. But how do I change it going forward? What went right and how do I replicate that behavior or or action? What went wrong and how do I change it? And if you can get your kids to understand how to engage in metacognition with those four questions in all areas of their life, they will become more independent. Mm -hmm. They will feel better. They will be less anxious. And it's, Mm -hmm. we can do it too as as adults. It's something that works. But Melissa, so what do you say to a parent that comes to you, um, you know, in your role as an education coach with your years of experience? What do you say to a parent um, 
who says, you know, I hear you, but listen, I'm stressed. I've got these job demands. I'm flailing myself. I'm just, I, I, um, I mean, it's easier for me to do it. Yes. You know, do, do you hear that? Oh, I hear it. And again, we all have to forgive ourselves. Again, there are times where I look around and I'm like, oh my gosh, I am just going to take care of this because if I don't, no one else will do it. Everybody has to do that. And it doesn't matter how much advice anybody gives, nobody can follow that all the time. That's an unrealistic expectation for anybody. But I'll say a couple things to parents. I will first laugh because we all we all have to have some humor and I'll say, okay, well, the next question is, do you want your child living in your basement when he's 30? And then we laugh a little <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and everyone says, no, I really don't want that. I said, okay. <laughs> no. No. And usually what I say to parents is choose the lowest hanging fruit. What is your child mm-hmm. already good at? What is your child already helpful with? What is the thing that you can focus on? on where your child already does a pretty good job. So if your kid's already pretty neat or your kid for whatever reason already kind of makes his bed or puts stuff in the dishwasher, start with that and just give your child one thing to do and let your child learn to develop a way to do it his own way or her own way and feel authentically successful about it. Because Mm -hmm. I will tell you this much, children want to be needed. We all want to be needed. Mm. And if that child is successful with one thing, oh, they will ask for something else or they will naturally do something else. So the process is not quite as hard. Don't go for the most difficult thing. You choose the lowest hanging fruit. And I always say to the parents, sit back for a week or two and observe your household. When are things going wrong? When are you most likely to be super stressed out? When are you most likely to lose it at your family? Where are your kids naturally good at things or where are their biggest challenges? Because that's, again, where you go for things. If your children really struggle with the laundry, don't start there. Start with our kids are really good at clearing their plates. Okay, then that's the place to start. And just do one thing and it can build itself from there. Mm -hmm. Not everyone's going to be perfect at this. I am certainly not perfect at it. Um, but I still, by having that routine and structure with my family have helped my kids get to a level of independence that for me, I feel pretty, I I feel really good about. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. All right. Very good. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So what if a parent, um, dislikes their teacher, their child's teacher, um, what recourse do they have? You know, how, how, how can they handle that situation? Right. And I can't imagine that because I think of the school I'm at and that just could never happen. I mean, every t- <laughs> what? no, of course, um, <clears throat> this is, again, one of those things where I think the parent, the first thing to do is to not have a knee jerk reaction. As I said earlier, mm-hmm. we should give ourselves permission to always feel every range of emotions and to not be stuffing those emotions down and saying, I shouldn't feel that. It's just the question of, how much control do we give our emotions over ourselves? So a lot of times as parents, we will be the mama bear. And if our kid come home and says, so-and-so hates me, my teacher hates me, our first reaction is to want to act. Well, our children don't need to be saved from themselves or from their circumstances all of the time. Now, that is different when they're physically in harm's way, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it's different when the child comes home and says, you know, my, my teacher hates me. My child, my teacher gave me an F on this. My, 
my teacher just picks on me all the time. Step back because our children's perception of things is usually pretty off. It really is because Mm. children have something called an imaginary audience. And even adults have it where we are so egocentric as humans that we think everyone's looking at us all the time. Everyone's out to get us. Everyone is focused on us, but we're actually all focused on ourselves anyway. And our children are really focused on themselves. And so they have what's called an imaginary audience where they are going to blow most things out of proportion. And you really see this happen with young teenagers. Middle school is where like every single person has a phone and I don't. Every single person can stay up until 12 o'clock and I have to go to bed. It's, it is a, just everything is an absolute. And so when our children come home with those emotions, let them sit with them and commiserate with them. Say to them, oh, tell me more about that. What's happening in your classroom and give them an opportunity to share with you, but don't try and solve it. You don't need to solve every problem. Sometimes we just want to be heard. Then I would say you start to categorize the issues. Every single child is going to have a teacher that is bad. It, it, it's just going to happen where they have the first year teacher who doesn't know what they're doing. They have the end of stage teacher that's really bitter and needs to retire. They have the teacher that yells. They have everyone's going to have that experience. And the question becomes, how do you help your child to navigate it? Because, you know, as well as I do, we are going to work with people we don't like. We are going to have difficult people in our lives, whether they are relatives or whether they are friends or coworkers. So that's that soft skill development. Don't try and rescue sometimes, help them build skills to navigate the situation. Then you can start to really decide, okay, is this, this teacher really targeting my child? And that can happen. I think it's very rare in 20 something years of teaching. I have met maybe one or two teachers that will have it out for a kid. Most teachers, they can be frustrated by a child's behavior, but they still love their students and they want to figure out why this is happening. So most teachers are are in this for really for the right reasons. And I always invite parents to think about that and to say, okay, let's go from a place of sort of empathy and compassion for our teachers because they've got tons of kids, lots of personalities right now. They're teaching in the middle of a pandemic They are underappreciated, underpaid and overstressed. So let's back, you know, back away from a little bit, but there are times where a a parent should step in. Um, And if a parent feels that way, that this is a pattern of behavior that is negatively affecting their child to the point where let's say stomach aches every day, not wanting to go to Mm -hmm. school crying in young children. We'll see in middle school students, they might begin to act out at home and to really misbehave at home to get themselves in trouble, to not have to be at school. When you start to see a consistent pattern of that type of behavior, then it is time to reach out. And what I normally say to parents is if it's academics and you have concerns that the teacher might not be fair, I say to go to the teacher first. I always, as a principal, ask parents, have you reached out to the teacher first to try and talk about this? Because as a teacher, I like, I like that level of respect. And every once in a while, I would make mistakes. I would grade something wrong. I would put a grade incorrectly into the grade book. I'm human. And if a parent was respectful in reaching out or a, or a student was respectful in saying, you know, Ms. Lowry, I think you might have made a mistake. I loved that. Because that gave me an opportunity to be vulnerable and to say, oh, my gosh, I made a mistake and, and, and I can learn from this. If the parent says, 
I'm uncomfortable. These are the reasons why I will always entertain that parent as a principal and then decide, okay, is this a situation where I ask the parent to go to the teacher because I think the teacher will really react well? Or is this something where I need to come in and help with this and say, okay, we're going to sit down with the teacher and we're going to walk through what's happening here. I always, as an administrator, try and bring the two together because when we form relationships, which has been very hard during the pandemic, we had a whole year at my school where parents couldn't come on campus, which is difficult in sort of a Christian school environment where the parents are used to being really involved. When people have relationships, it's harder to go to the place of anger first. So I'm always trying to bring people together to find where we can talk about something and figure out why it's going wrong. And so going back, I would say to parents, listen first, keep it in perspective, and then think about how you can help your child develop tools to navigate a relationship with a teacher that might not be great. If you start to see a pattern of behavior that's really negative, including your child really engaging in behavior so they can avoid school and that avoidance, then I would say you either need to have a conversation with the teacher if you're comfortable. If you're uncomfortable, then yes, administration, but yelling and screaming rarely works. Yelling and screaming, even when you're angry, is not a great idea because you still want to partner with the school to try and solve the problem. Mm -hmm. So I would say those are the best steps that a parent can go through. Those are good. Very, Mm -hmm. very good. So what... What about this situation, um, Melissa? What about if your child has a learning disability? So what can parents do in that situation? So, you know, this is hard because uh, I think when we have children in our minds, whether we want to say it out loud or not, we sort of create a path for them, right? And we kind of have this vision Mm -hmm. of where we see our children Mm -hmm. going. And if a child becomes ill or there is an accident or there is something that adversely affects our child development, whatever it might be, that sort of throws us off the path of where we think our child's going. And that's hard to take as a parent It is because all of a sudden it shifts Mm -hmm. your trajectory, like what you're thinking. And it's one of those things where the first thing is, again, it's compassion for yourself and saying, okay, I'm going to mourn a loss of what I thought might happen for my child. So if it might be a language-based learning disability, which might be dyslexia, which dyslexia is, it's going to exist in easily 20% of the students in any classroom. Mm. And unlike I think when we were younger and what we saw dyslexia as is it would be defined as someone can't read and they reverse all of their letters and they'll never be able to read. That was sort of what I kind Mm -hmm. of grew up with in my mind. Dyslexia is not at all that. Dyslexia is actually a very diverse and complicated diagnosis that has about eight subcategories that I will not go into now. I'll just Mm -hmm. bring up one. And that Mm -hmm. is something like dysgraphia. Dysgraphia is when a student with dyslexia has difficulty with the physical act of writing. So you see a student who has really messy handwriting and no matter what you do, there's no improvement. And the child will react with things like, I am physically tired when I'm writing. 
It, I feel like I want to fall asleep after I've been writing. It hurts. It's very hard. I forget what I'm supposed to say. All of these things sometimes will point to the condition dysgraphia. And basically that is um, a disconnect between the brain and the hand. And if we look at reading, it's an extremely complex process. And so we have to first take in language. So that's receptive language. When you Mm -hmm. receive language, whether it's verbal or whether you're reading something, then you have to process it. And then you have to figure out how to express it. So are we going to express it in a conversation and are, or we express it in the written form. Mm-hmm. So a student with dysgraphia, there is a disconnect that happens. And when that message travels from the brain to the hand, something happens in that process that causes a disconnect. And that disconnect actually makes it physically difficult for the child to write. And so then that child will hear things from a teacher or a parent, like if you only tried harder, if you were just wrote neater and that poor kid is banging himself, you know, his head against the proverbial wall saying, I am doing everything I can. And this is so physically taxing. So that's like one aspect of dyslexia that people wouldn't know. They would just think this kid has messy handwriting. And so when we look at dyslexia, it's very complex. And so when, when it's a language-based learning disability, parents need to find information first. And so they need to look to their child's teacher, to administrators, if there's a resource program at the school to get as much information as possible. And I would say that the International Dyslexia Association, I think it's called IDEA, I'm a member myself, is Mm -hmm. phenomenal. And Mm -hmm. it is one of the best resources out there. So the Mm -hmm. International Dyslexia Association, and then they will have chapters by, uh, by state. So like Georgia has its own chapter and they do their own in-service and things like that. But language-based learning disabilities like dyslexia, students are going to, for the most part, need some form of intervention. And so it is talking to a learning specialist through the school and public schools and a lot of private schools have departments to do this. And it's to make sure you get testing. So what will happen a lot of times is teachers or administrators or resource departments will observe certain behaviors in a child or certain academic indicators that Mm -hmm. say, Ooh, I think we're we're seeing something that might be an issue. And so in young children, it might be issues with phonics where they are not learning the phonics rules the way that they should. It could be reversals with letters, but those reversals are not going to be typical, like a B and a D or reversing the letter C. They are going to persist much longer than like kindergarten, first, even second grade, That is developmentally typical that you would see reversals that hold in on all of those grade levels. They will be persistent. Some of those children will have a lot of difficulty uh, with spelling and they won't be able to even spell phonetically is what we call it. So when you see a child, um, if they spell a word like cat and they spell it K-A-T, well, Mm -hmm. at, it -hmm. might be a K or a C, Mm -hmm. that's a phonetic spelling. Mm -hmm. They may misspell words. All of those things are typical, but when you add the misspellings with the inability to learn the phonics rules with um, things like delayed speech and mispronunciation of words, all of a sudden you're starting to see a bunch of pieces of a puzzle that are pointing in a different direction. That's when a teacher or a resource department might reach out to to a parent. And then they're going to do a referral to usually a psychologist who can do what we call a psychoeducational evaluation. And that is a huge word for something that's not that scary. It's basically a number of evaluations and tests that let us diagnose where the issue might be coming from, because there's even a type of dyslexia called dyspraxia that has to do with math. 
And a lot of people think if you're dyslexic, you would never have a problem in math. And that's actually not true. And so that if a school were to recommend that to a parent, the parent shouldn't be afraid or insulted or anything like that. It's the same as saying, we're not sure what this physical ailment is with your child. So we're going to run some tests. This is the same exact, exact thing, but it has to do with the potential for a learning difference. And parents should engage themselves in that process. It's not scary. No one's poking needles, but it will help give a comprehensive picture of what might be happening mm-hmm. with your child. Mm-hmm. And I use my son as an example. He is dyslexic and he had a lot of the markers of dyslexia. And I, as an educator, did not see them. And it was mm-hmm. his kindergarten teacher who pulled me aside and said, Melissa, you do this for a living. You're not seeing the bigger picture. And I needed help. And then I had to take time where I felt guilty. Did I not read to him enough? Is this my fault? Is this? No, it's not. Mm -hmm. It's my beautiful child made in the image of God. And this is how he's Mm -hmm. been made. But I needed help getting to that Mm -hmm. point. And then we did the evaluation, all those things. And we learned all of my son's strengths and weaknesses. And what I like to say is I take the freeway. He takes the side streets. So it takes him a little longer to get there. But quite honestly, his view his trip, his ride is actually sometimes far better and far more interesting than mine is. And with, with dyslexics in particular, when they do PET scans of their brains, they fire all over the place. They're simply inefficient. And when they get the help they need and intervention, they actually can rewire certain areas of the brain to make them more efficient and effective at reading Mm -hmm. um, and and development and all those types of things. So early intervention, parents being able to say, it's okay, I'm going to mourn that the path might not be exactly the same, that my child might have to manage some other challenges that other children don't. At the same time, I found that my son, Mac, his view of the world is incredible. And when you look at a list of like successful dyslexics, for instance. Oh my gosh. I mean, everyone Mm -hmm. from Tom Cruise to Charles Schwab were dyslexic. And those are the inventors and creators Mm. and all of the people with a viewpoint of the world that's different. So our world is a richer place for them. But parents need to Mm -hmm. build a team. They need to accept that the path for their child might be different. They need to be willing to look at their child critically and they need to be willing to say, okay, you know, I might not have seen everything. I might not. And they need to know it's not their fault. Mm-hmm. And to right. work with the school and to work with the professionals to help their child. And the earlier you can do that, the better. Mm-hmm. So if a parent, if a, um, a school brings it up, even in pre-K or kindergarten, I would say that psychoeducational evaluations are not as accurate younger. So I don't use, we as a school don't usually recommend them till at least first grade, but there are um, different evaluative tools that schools can use to see if there are um, the warning signs for dyslexia. Mm -hmm. And so we will use those first and then start to talk to parents about even implementing some good interventions, even before we have testing. But parents should really just be open to it because schools want to help we really want all of our children to be as successful as possible. And then we also want to provide parents with tools that they will need to be able to support their child at home. Wow. Okay. Right. Okay. Wow. Some, some, some great tips and points for parents. Um, Let's talk about new teachers. What, what are some tips that you would share with um, new teachers and 
um, include in the in that um, some tips on how they can manage that they manage or that they can use to manage their stress during COVID during this COVID area era. Yes. I mean, my, my heart goes out to every new teacher who has decided to enter the field during this time. Um, No teacher signed on for any of this Mm. to begin with, but especially new teachers. So my, uh, my heart and my prayers go out to all of them. And I would say again, for new teachers, it's been a theme, our whole discussion, forgive yourself. You're not saving the world in a year. It's just not going to happen. And you're not going to have all the tools in your toolbox that you need to address every problem that's happening. So I um, love a phrase that teachers use all the time, beg, borrow, steal. There is no shame in uh, going to more experienced teachers and begging, borrowing, and stealing and saying, what are the things that are working Mm -hmm. in your classroom? What are lessons that you've learned? And how can I use this in my own classrooms? I know that we pair our new teachers with a veteran teacher. We have a mentoring program, and that is very, very helpful. We make sure that our new teachers know that they have places to go to be able to voice their concerns. And I think for administrators out there, it's very important to establish a culture and a community of trust and caring with your Mm -hmm. faculty, that they know that they can make mistakes And that they can have questions and feel like they don't have the answers and be able to come to you. Because if you create that culture and community where there's an openness, teachers will come to you when they don't have the tools, especially new teachers. And you can help them find those tools, provide professional development, whatever you need. Otherwise, they're going to hide it. Mm-hmm. And then what's going to happen yeah. is you're going to get a big rug where they've been sweeping all of this stuff underneath it. And then it's going to blow up. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have mm-hmm. the angry parents and whatever. And those teachers won't have any of the coping skills at that point to address it. So mm-hmm. new teachers need to try and find themselves a mentor. They need to talk to their team. If they have a team, they need to seek support from their administrators And then the beg, borrowing, and stealing goes beyond just your own environment. Uh, My favorite website out there is Mm teacherspayteachers.com. All one word, teacherspayteachers.com. And for very nominal fee, very low, some stuff's free all the way up to a couple bucks, teachers provide and post their best lessons that they've written. Wow, really? Yes, and other teachers can purchase them. And as a veteran teacher myself, like right now, I'm leading a book study with our seventh grade with the book Make Your Bed by Admiral McRaven, which Mm -hmm. is just awesome, all about Mm -hmm. uh, advice from a Navy SEAL on how to improve your life. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I did is I went to Teachers Pay Teachers and I bought several resources that I, that helped me to build the lesson plan for my book study. Why, why start over when you have other professionals who have done this? It doesn't matter how many years I've taught. I needed help with this book in particular. So I love, love, love teacherspayteachers.com. It's great. And then I would also say I'm not the biggest user of social media, but like Facebook, Facebook, for instance, has an entire Facebook group on Google Classroom. And I have a lot of teachers who are part of that group and it helps them to use Google Classroom more effectively. I would also say Instagram, and I meant to kind of download a list and I, I, I forgot, but Instagram has a bunch of phenomenal teachers on Instagram who will share their best practices and things that they do. And I would highly recommend following them. And then the other is 
one of the best classroom management guys out there is Harry Wong. And Mm -hmm. Harry Wong, I think his website is harrywong.com, but he has a book called The First Days of School. And it has been published. I mean, I don't know how many versions there are, but we actually gift that to every new teacher that comes on to our faculty. And then we require that they complete his classroom management course and we pay for it. And it's not expensive, um, but still first year teachers, you know, they need all the help they can get. And I think it's about 200 bucks or something like that, but they send the materials and it's a whole classroom management course. And what I would say to young teachers or new teachers is that's where you start. The curriculum and the resources will come a little bit. If you don't have control over your classroom and you don't know how to establish rapport and you don't know how to create create a culture and a community in your classroom, it doesn't matter how great your skills are in teaching you won't be able to reach Mm -hmm. your students. So Harry Wong to me is by far the best. Again, we require our new teachers to go through his classroom management course. It's wonderful. The other thing that I recommend for new teachers or any teacher is a course by Lori, Dr. Lori Santos. She is also out of Yale and she has a podcast called the happiness lab. She taught, she teaches a course out of Yale called the science of happiness. And it was like, yeah, yes, she's heard of that. Mm -hmm. So she teaches a free course um, called the science of happiness. Mm -hmm. And it is not necessarily for teachers, but it really looks at behaviors that we can engage in to improve the happiness in our lives. So when you talk about mental health for new teachers and how they can protect themselves, I really think that this course is really great for anybody who wants to take it. It is free. Yeah, I was about to say that, yeah. Yeah, it's free. And then what we did is when the teachers finished it, anyone who wanted to take it, I I assigned it over the summer. We paid them through our title funding, a small stipend for having completed it. They just sent us like their course certificate. And I have had many teachers comment that it really positively influenced um, their sort of approach to mm-hmm. the way that they were looking at their classroom and their own mental, emotional mm-hmm. well-being. So those are some of the things Thank that I would care. recommend. And then also for new teachers, your first year is going to be difficult. That is it. It doesn't matter if you're uh, in the best school with the best mm-hmm. administrators and the best mentors. You have to live it. It's like any experience like parenthood, the first year of parenthood. I don't know if I remember it because it's a days of just survival. And that is once a a teacher has forgiven himself or herself and said, okay, the first year is going to be getting through, then you're going to take some pressure off yourself because nobody, I'm not a perfect teacher now. I never will be. The hope is that I learn from any of my mistakes. I engage in self-reflective process and metacognition. I address mistakes when I make them. I try my best not to make them again. I apologize and I mean it when I do um, say or do something that might, you know, that might have not landed the correct way. Mm -hmm. I've been insensitive or something just to own that behavior, not to feel like you have all of the answers to be vulnerable with your students, even with their parents, um, to be your real self every day. And if you do those things, you will naturally be happier in your position because you won't feel like you're having to fake it all the time. Wow. Mm. Well, I tell you, um, Melissa, you 
I feel like Teresa and I owe you some money or something. I feel like you're, <laughs> you're coaching us and coaching our audience. Um, yeah. We're going to have to talk about that bill when we're done. So um, <laughs> but, um, should students be on campus right now? You referenced earlier about how important relationships are, and particularly now that we find ourselves dealing with pan- the pandemic, of course, with so so much of our education happening with people not being able to be in the presence of others and not being able to connect and form those relationships. But are there steps to take right now to safely bring students back to campus? So I always like to say I am not a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, I respect them. And we have several that work with us on our own team at at my school to ensure we're serving our community well and keeping them safe and healthy. It's hard to answer because I don't like to Monday morning quarterback anything, Mm -hmm. but it is hard to speak for any environment, learning environment that I'm not in. Mm -hmm. So that's difficult. What I can say is from a mental health perspective, yes, children should be in school. We've talked about structure. We've talked about routine. We've talked about relationships. We are social beings by nature. Human Mm -hmm. beings want interaction. Even those of us that are introverts want social interaction. We want touch. Mm -hmm. We want, like, I couldn't believe it when there were some school districts years back that told their teachers, you can't hug your students Mm -hmm. anymore. Mm -hmm. I just about blew up. And I thought for some of these kids, that -hmm. is the only human adult touch that's healthy that they Mm -hmm. receive in a day we need to have those relationships. So I do believe that it is much healthier for our students to be on campus, not just for the students, but for their families and caregivers. And I think it's better for our teachers because of those relationships. From an academic perspective, there are things that you, that happen on campus that go beyond the actual curriculum that our kids need to be in school for. Peer-to-peer relationships are extremely important, not Mm. just social, emotionally, but even academically. A lot of teachers use peer tutoring as a teaching tool, and it's very effective. Sometimes uh, a peer-to-peer interaction with a concept can be related like child-to-child much more effectively Mm. than when an adult says it. Uh, kids also, when they can teach a concept themselves, that's one of the best ways to evaluate mastery of that concept. So that's really important to have. So I would say, yes, our kids should be on campus. That second part of that is, are we creating an environment that's safe for them? So I would say now that from where I sit in Georgia and from the school district that I'm in, which is the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Atlanta, that's Mm -hmm. the system that, uh, that my school works within. We have evaluated data, I mean, a lot of data over the past two years to find that in-person learning for our environment has been the best thing. We went into quarantine March of 2020 with everybody else, but starting August Mm -hmm. of 2020, we have been in-person every single day. Now, we have had had quarantines, we have had students Mm -hmm. in classes who have had to quarantine, but as a school, we have been open every single day. Um, And we have not had to go to a full pivot to uh, online learning. We have offered times of like voluntary virtual learning if a parent or a family feels they have to quarantine after a trip or they've had an exposure or something like that. But we have found that the mental health of our students and their academic growth has been served by being in school. I can also say that our our in-school transmission rate has been 
close to zero. So mm. we have found that wow. trans- transmissions in our environment in school have been very low. Most transmissions have taken place, especially now with Omicron, because of how contagious it is within families. Mm -hmm. So we have had to kind of pivot and change our approach to contact tracing and quarantining based on the data that we have from our environment. But schools also have to look at what is the vaccination rate in your school? Now, we do not require vaccinations from our faculty, staff, or our students. We encourage it, but we deeply respect every parent's approach to what they want to do. But our vaccination rate has been very healthy. So with that, we've been able to buffer our community. Some schools with very low vaccination rate for a number of different reasons, they may have to take a different approach to quarantining, contact tracing, everything else than let's say our district has. So I am very careful to judge what any other school is doing, any other administrator, because I've had to live through the last two years of everybody harshly judging what it is that we've done in our specific school community and in our larger archdiocesan community when those people don't necessarily have all the information. They don't have the local data that we're working with. They aren't seeing what's happening within the school itself. They don't know what the transmission or the not transmission, Mm -hmm. the positivity rate is Mm -hmm. for faculty and staff. Mm -hmm. So we have a myriad of different decisions we're making. Um, We have seen that in-person learning has served our students well. We are seeing that our faculty and staff for the most part have benefited from that. We have had to be very cognizant of their mental health. We have some faculty members that are more comfortable than others. We have tried very hard to give them the space that they need to be comfortable. We have made different um, concessions for different teachers, knowing what they might need or if they have a compromised immune system. Mm -hmm. I had one teacher, you know, I said, you need to proactively quarantine for a little bit longer than everybody else. We'll get a substitute in to make sure that this environment's safe. So every school has to do what works for them. I don't want to judge what anyone else does, but I will say (coughs) our data have been strong that in school is the best. And if our school can react to transmissions and positivities, if the school can implement a multi-layered mitigation uh, platform, we had as much social distancing as possible. We had required masking. We had disinfecting. We had, I mean, a whole host of things that we were doing. We were restricting our large indoor gatherings. We were restricting our volunteer opportunities. All these different mitigation strategies were working for our particular environment. And then we would tweak those literally on a case-by-case basis. Every event, we would contact trace, all those different things. And we have found that we've been able to have in-person learning successfully, and we have been able to uh, provide our students with that structure and routine. But I will say, if a school does not feel that they can keep their population healthy, then virtual learning is going to be better than nothing. Um, Virtual learning and that support is going to be a little bit more structure and routine than nothing. But Mm -hmm. the data is the data are coming out strong, though, that I'd say across the board, if you look at data from other states in school transmissions for students, that data continue to be strong, that in-school transitions are, transmissions are, are, are low. Mm-hmm. And if we can manage to continue to do that, our, our students should be in school. Okay. All right. 
Well, thank you. And thank you so much for meeting with us. You have, as I said earlier, you have shared so much solid information and um, the resources that you've provided. I've just tried to write everything down. It's great we have a recording because um, certainly if there's something that we can return to as a parent that's got solid information that we can use as a reference point. That's always much appreciated. So, Melissa, thank you for so much for joining us today here at Earrings Off. Well, it's been an absolute honor and pleasure for me. And the only bill that I'm going to send you is going to be one that is just honestly, like I'm not charging you. I'm just going to thank you because whenever we can come together as a community and share our resources and our knowledge, become vulnerable with one another and, and, and know that we're in it together, regardless yeah. of our backgrounds, regardless right, of right. our education, all those things. If we can get this information out to as many people and, and help people during specifically now a time of isolation right. and a lot of self-judgment to help people feel better about themselves, their parenting, everything else, and to provide people with the resources that they need, then that that's payment enough that is payment enough for me. Yeah. I feel very strongly about just sharing everything that we have with everybody that we can so that we know that we're all in it together. I think that the things that we have in common far outweigh the things that divide us. And when you look at what's happening in our society today, from, from media to, to politics, we aren't telling each other enough that what brings us together is far more important than what our differences are. And I, and I'm just, I'm so grateful that you invited me to come on. I'm so grateful that you invited me to share. And I just hope that anything that I've said can be helpful to your audience. Well, thank you. And thank you so much. We know it will be. So again, thank you much for coming on Earrings Off. And we certainly wish you all the best. We know already that your school, that you are such an asset to your school and your community. So again, thank you. Thank you so much. All right. All right.